men, if you have your Bibles, open up to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. If you don't have your own copy of God's Word, just grab the Pew Bible there in front of you and open up to page 1353 in the Pew Bible. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And let me just say, uh, as you're opening up there, how grateful I am to you, the faithful members of First Baptist Church of Gadsden, for how well you handled Easter Sunday. We had a lot of guests here, a lot of visitors, and you were so welcoming and loving and kind. Somebody probably had their parking spot taken. Somebody probably had their seat taken. And uh, I've had no emails telling me somebody made them get out of their seat. And so for me, that's a big win. I appreciate that. I've never had one of those emails here, never once, because you are so hospitable, love having folks come to our church. So thank you for handling that so well. And why don't we just keep it going, you know? We, let's just keep having guests and keep inviting them in and keep loving them well. We'll just keep it, make it a, make it a trend. How's it sound? All right, let's do it. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. If you have your Bibles open there, why don't you go ahead and stand with me out of reading, the reading of the words of our God. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God Himself is speaking to you. Beginning verse 15. He, being Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven, heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray together. Lord, today would you open our hearts and minds, God, to receive your word. And we pray today, Lord, that we would be changed by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Stop and think with me for just a moment. Let me ask you a question. What do you, and maybe better yet, what do we fear? What are we afraid of? And not just as individuals. Individuals, obviously, we all have different things that we fear, different things we're afraid of. So you personally, obviously, there's that question, what am I afraid of? But I ask you this question societally. The big things as a culture, as a people, what are we 
afraid of. Right now, this weekend, the movie Avengers Endgame. Now, my son Ford is not in here. He would be very excited right now to hear me talk about this. Avengers Endgame. It's a big superhero movie. If you're not into that kind of thing, that's okay. But right now, it's in the process of making more money than any movie has ever made in one weekend. It's already done that for a day, from what I understand. It's in the process of doing that for the weekend. It will probably be the highest grossing movie uh, in the history of movies. It's going to make a lot of money. And, and what you may not know about it is it's the final movie in a long arc. It's summing up a story, and I think there will be more later. But right now, it's summing up a big storyline arc in what's called the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It used to be comic books, and now they're these huge... It's a huge, the highest grossing movie franchise of all time. No group of movies has ever made more money. And from generation to generation, I would argue that our superheroes tell us what we're afraid of. Our superheroes tell us what we fear. You know, when, uh, when many of you were growing up, all the comic book villains were Nazis. Why? Because people were afraid of the Nazis. Later on, it became the Soviets that were huge in comic book villainy. Now, not that as much. Now, the latest iterations of villains have either been someone who has been wronged by a character, somebody from their past, or it's someone from their present, or someone who's ruining their future. It shows us what we're afraid of. The latest iterations of villains have featured an eco-terrorist. It's kind of the latest guy, big guy. He feels like we're ruining everything, the universe, and so he wants to kill half of everyone. There's a computer that takes over, gets its own mind and takes over and decides it's going to snuff humanity out because they're the problem in the world. You see, we are worried. We are afraid of our past We are afraid of our progress. We are afraid of our future. We're afraid and haunted by our mistakes. And honestly, we're haunted also by the things we do well. In this passage, Paul is helping us understand the width, the breadth, and the depth of who Jesus is and what his death and his resurrection mean. And in this beautiful passage, one of the most beautiful passages of the New Testament, one of the great soul and mind-shaping passages of my life. I I love Colossians chapter 1. I love in particular this great Christ poem that Paul has quoted or written here. I love it. And what Paul is doing in this great passage is helping us see how Jesus make sense of the world. He's helping us see how Jesus ought to define not only what we're afraid of, but what we're not afraid of. He's helping us see how Jesus ought to help us make sense of and view the world in a certain way. Jesus is making sense of reality. Philosophers and sociologists coined a term several years ago called worldview. Worldview. It's just a basic set of assumptions that each and every one of us make about the world around us. We assume some things are good and some things are bad without really doing much data processing. What, what are our gut level reactions to things? What are the lenses 
through which we view the world. Sort of like the old saying about the great philosopher Aristotle who one day looked at his fish and realized that the fish doesn't know he's wet. He's always been wet, right? And so he doesn't know what it means to be dry. And so unless you know what it means to be dry, you don't know what it means to be wet. Aristotle's fish didn't know he's wet. In the same way, many of us live in a world in which we make assumptions about the way things are and we never really think about the fact that we're wet. We never really think about the way we've been impacted by our environment. Everyone basically applies four questions to the world. Everyone has a set of assumptions built around really, one could argue, these four questions to help them make sense of the world around them. Most all of us have sort of axiomatic understandings of the world that are really answers to these four questions that we're going to look at today. Four questions that help us diagnose how we view the world And today, I want to ask the question, does Christianity make sense of the world? I want to look at these four basic worldview questions and show how I think Jesus Christ and His gospel, Christianity, make better sense of the world, make better sense of the way we view and understand the world than anything the world provides. Good answers. Here's the first question. Where did we come from? Where do we come from? What is our, to borrow on the superhero theme again, what is our origin story? Where did we come from? Why are we here and how are we here? Aside from religious views, the most popular view in the world today, I think, is a materialistic view of the world. A, a, A radical materialist view view of the world. This is represented in so many ways by the thinking of modern Darwinists, that we came from material, that there was stuff in the world and we developed out of that stuff. Now there are other views, but my guess is most of us have dealt with this one the most. This view that the world and everything in it is a result of some sort of primordial processes that eventually evolved into life as we know it today. There's a problem with this view. And the problem is that there's a ghost in the machine. We are haunted by something. There's a reality, and here it is. There's more than stuff, and we know it. There's more than stuff, and we know it. You see, so many people in our culture and society, and people you know, even whether they know it or not, have basic assumptions that the world is just stuff. That anything you've ever felt is just chemical reactions. The problem is that that just doesn't make sense of the world. It just doesn't do the best job of making sense of the world. And, and there are a whole host of characters out there in the world who've really kind of made a living and made themselves famous by popping bubbles uh, in this way. I always say I'd love to see Neil deGrasse Tyson, the great astrophysicist, who is a really great scientist and a really terrible philosopher. If you ever check him out on Twitter, you'll, you'll see what I mean. And he's really, like, loves to just pop bubbles all the time. It's like I'd love to see Neil deGrasse Tyson at uh, your kid's first birthday party. Congratulations, you know, a glob of cells made it around an insignificant planet of an insignificant star one more time. Way to go. Now, there's more than stuff, and we know it. Tim Keller said it like this, if you are being swept up in joy and wonder by a work of art, and, and just take that word work of art there, and maybe you're not into a work of art, but maybe, maybe you, you've been taken up by other kinds of works of art, maybe not a painting, but 
But what about a beautiful building? Anybody ever seen like gorgeous architecture? How many of you were glued to the TV as Notre Dame was burning? Why? Why? Why do we care? So, so if you are being swept up in joy and wonder by a work of art, it will impoverish you to remind yourself that this feeling is simply a chemical reaction that helped your ancestors find food and escape predators and nothing more. That's true. I've been present when my children were born, and I don't sit there and just say, wow, what a biological process. Wow, you know, isn't it amazing? Congratulations. We have uh, 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 produced more DNA for the next generation. That's not what you think when a child is born. There's a reason why we cry when we see the Grand Canyon. And I believe it's the alternate vision of reality about where we came from that Christianity presents. And it's the truth. We have been created. We were made with a purpose. The Bible here tells us that God created everything that exists through and for Jesus Christ. Look at verses 16 and 17. For by Him all things were created... In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. That is, there's nothing that exists that was not made through Jesus. In other words, everything in this world at some level or another bears the mark of being made by Jesus Christ. There's not a single molecule of dirt which Jesus walked on that did not belong to Him. Everything that he saw, he made. It was made through him, and it was made for him. Not only did he make it, it was also his inheritance. Furthermore, everything that God created is held together in Jesus Christ. He is what makes sense of the world. He is the very logos of God. The Bible says, in him all things are held together. I love it. I love that phrase. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is, therefore, the epicenter, the linchpin, the cornerstone, if you will, of everything that exists. You see, there's a reason why you experience transcendence, why you're dissatisfied. The most hardened skeptic is still dissatisfied with a materialistic explanation of the world. There's a reason why beauty is compelling. There's a reason why the truth matters. There's a reason why sacrifice, and one of the first times in human history since Jesus lived and died, there's a reason why sacrifice is a virtue. There's a reason why. Ever stop and thought about this? There's a reason why mankind has such an immense capacity for good. The Vikings didn't sit around and praise people for weakness. And we do. If you watch CBS News with the Vikings, they don't have a a story, a little human interest story about a group of guys uh, sitting down eating dinner with a widow. Just not something that appealed to those cultures where strength was so valued. But it appeals to us. There's a reason why mankind has such an immense capacity for good It's because you were made by and you were made for someone. And His name is Jesus Christ. 
I believe that while the materialistic view of the world might make some sense of everything we can see, the problem with it is that there's a lot that we can't see. There are metaphysics. There are things beyond the materialistic world. And while science is really good at helping us understand that which we can see and that which we can touch, that which we can observe, that which we can taste, that which we can smell, it's really bad at helping us understand that which we cannot see. Where do we come from is the first question. The second question is this, what went wrong? What went wrong? Now, there's nobody who's not asking that question, right? What went wrong? Now, you may have questions about really serious things, big picture things, famine. You may have big questions about war, just about the banality of evil. You may be a philosopher and think about all these kind of things all the time. You may sit like Hamlet holding a skull, pondering mortality. I don't know. But almost everyone I know ponders some level of why things aren't the way they should be. Even if it's something as mere as your first world problems. Why, why is it like this? Why am I depressed? Why are these things going on in my life? We're asking questions about what went wrong. And there are lots of answers being thrown out in the world today. Gearing up for an election in a couple of years. And you're going to hear over and over and over again, this question asked and this question answered. Over and over and over again, what went wrong? Some of the answers I hear all the time are uh, oppression. There are all kinds of philosophies that are built on the idea that oppression is what's wrong with the world. Greed, war. Some people say religion is the problem. Poverty. And and I'll be the first to admit, these are all credible options to help us make sense of what is wrong in the world. However, the problem with each and every one of these things is that each of them are insufficient in and of themselves. None of them are big enough to help us make comprehensive sense of the evil that's present in the world. Things are wrong, and no one thing, no one small problem is sufficient to help make sense of all the problems. And I would argue that there's a small three-letter word that makes sense of it. And that's the word sin. We live in a fallen world. Where do we come from? God created a good world. But now we have experienced Genesis 3, the fall. Sin came into the world and undid so much of the goodness which... Now, Goodness is retained by and large, but it's tarnished. It's, it's made wrong. We live in a world in which evil reigns. Notice what Paul tells us in verses 20 and 21. Verse 20, he says, Jesus is reconciling to himself all things. Now, we're going to talk about that verse a little more, but the, the very idea that something needs to be reconciled tells us something about a Genesis 3 world. And the fact that Something needs to be reconciled is important, but it's also important to recognize that the Bible says all things need to be reconciled back unto God through Jesus Christ. We we live in a world that's been comprehensively affected by sin. There's nothing that's untouched. I always like to say it's as if somehow or another your car made it into the Coosa River and it stayed there for a week and you pulled it out and you say, "I I wonder which parts are still dry. It's a stupid question. No parts are still dry, right? It's been totally submerged. Everything is impacted by the submerging. In the same way, all of creation has been impacted by sin. Listen to verse 21. Furthermore, 
Not only has the world been that, not only all things, but listen to what Paul says in verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled. The fall explains all the problems in the world. And what we tend to want to do, what we tend to want to do, is focus on the problems that affect the world around us. We, we like to focus on the environmental effects of sin, those things which are happening around us, and we rarely want to Im- focus on the impact that sin's had on us. But the Bible says that sin makes sense of both. And what we recognize is that the things that people think are the problem are actually a problem that's a result of the problem, which is sin, which is the fall. And so often we miss the biggest problem in our lives, and it's in the mirror. It's ourselves. But the gospel offers hope not only for the problems of the world, not only for all the evil in the world, but it also also provides hope for the evil in us. Well, we ask ourselves, where did we come from? What went wrong? And naturally, the next question must be, how do we fix it? How do we make things right again? What is the process? And and here's what I'll argue this morning. I believe in our society and probably in the world today, the most popular vision for how to fix things in the world today is politics. I, I believe that politics is the most popular vision for how to fix the world. Small ball problems result in small ball solutions. And so we go to politics to try to fix what's wrong. And what this winds up doing, you see, in, in, in times past, people came up with other solutions besides just politics. So often, over the years, religion has, has tried to be the solution. In other words, what man can do to try to please God has tried to be the solution. There's still whole great world religions that are based on that idea that it's up to man to fix the world based on how good he can be. But that's not Christianity's redemptive vision. And now in an increasingly secular world, the only thing people have left are politics to make a difference in the world. And so this sort of idolatry of politics, it impacts our views, it impacts our rhetoric, and it adds to our disillusionment when politicians and politics don't work out. I've noticed the cycle. I've noticed the cycle. People are really excited right before an election. Y'all notice this? I mean, really excited about whoever their candidate is, they're going to fix everything. Six months later, they hate them. Six months later, they're disillusioned with their candidate. My candidate is the worst. They're ruining everything. Same with football coaches. He's saving this program. Nope. He's ruining the program. You see, the world right now is caught. The world right now is caught in a cycle that's perpetually Palm Sunday and perpetually Good Friday. Really excited, disappointed to the point of murder, but it's never Easter. There's never a resurrection. Things are never actually fixed. We're trying to make for ourselves kings to fix our problems. All the while, there's only one way that the problems of this world can be or will be fixed. And that's through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I'm no Pollyanna that says we don't need practical things. I'm no Pollyanna that says we don't need politics to fix things. In the meantime, there's no question about that. But in the long run, the only true hope, the only sure hope, the only thing we can permanently look to to make things right is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. <clears throat> we see in verses 18 through 20 a picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. What Paul is saying is that Jesus' resurrection proves that he is preeminent in all things. He is first place. Everything revolves around Jesus. And therefore, if we want things to go right, we must put Jesus in first place in all things. We must crown him Lord of lords in our lives and in society. But we must also recognize that Christ's death deals with the problem of sin. You see, we need somebody, we need something to deal with sin. We, we, we can't just manage sin. And that's what we so often try to do with all our solutions, all the things we try to come up with. It, they're, they're really, at the end of the day, attempts to manage sin, to manage life in a Genesis 3 world. It's exactly what Solomon did. In the book of Ecclesiastes, he tried over and over and over again to just simply try to rearrange the pieces in his life to get as much as he could out of a Genesis 3 world. And in the end, he said, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And he pointed us to something beyond the sun. And it's a hope that we would all be able to share one day in a coming king, a coming Messiah who would make all things right. Christ's death deals finally and fully with the problem of sin. Look at verses 19 and 20. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is fully God, and that's what allows him to do what it says in verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. What? Making peace by the blood of his cross. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the wellspring of aid for a lost and ruined world. And so often we want to focus on things that are downstream from the problem and downstream from the solution, when really we need to go to the source of the problem, which is sin, and the source of the solution, which is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then emerge with other solutions from there. It is the wellspring by which all things are fixed and made right. Ultimately, we must recognize that this place cannot be fixed apart from the one who made it, apart from the one who is preeminent in it, and apart from the one who died on the cross for our sins. We need Jesus to fix this place. Where did we come from? God made us. What went wrong? Sin went wrong. How do we fix it? We can't, but Jesus has. And the final question that everyone asks is, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? What is my future? Do you see how each and every one of these things are also oftentimes the things that we're most afraid of, the things that we're most unsure about, the things we most desperately want answers to? Where do we go from here. By and large, there are two views of where we go from here. One is the optimistic view. One is the optimistic view. It's a view that sees humans as basically good 
and basically good, and that human progress will continue as time goes on until finally we live in a utopia. That view gets less and less popular as the years go on. Most people, I think, hold to the other view, the pessimistic view, a dystopian future. We fear our progress. We fear what's going to happen next. We are afraid that our technology will kill us. We're, we're afraid that we'll get, go so far and so fast that eventually we destroy everything. We're afraid that eventually we're either going to live in the world of the Matrix or the Lorax, depending on your age, where we've ruined the world we live in. But I think, and I think the Bible teaches us, that both are true. That there's reason for hope and there's reason for negativity. But ultimately, ultimately, we have a reason for hope. What does the Bible say here, verse 23? If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from what? From the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is what Paul means when he says we need hope. You retain hope. To say that you would have hope means you need hope because things aren't good. Things aren't right. And so we need hope. But we have hope because things will get better. We have hope because the day is coming when Jesus will come and make all things right. When he will fully and completely apply his work to the world and reconcile in the end all things to himself. Things will get worse, and we'll need hope. Things will get better, and that's why we have hope. Because Jesus, he has said, did not leave us as orphans, but says he will come back to get us. He will make all things right. Where do we come from? God made us. What went wrong? Sin in the fall. How do we fix it? Jesus fixes it by the blood of his cross and by his resurrection. And where do we go from here? To a glorious future in Christ. And even though the sins of humanity and, and the tribulation of this world will grow worse and worse and worse as time goes on, a day will come when Jesus will make all things new and all things right, and He will beat the swords into plowshares, and we will live unto Him forever and ever and ever. You see, brothers and sisters, there is a reason why this weekend millions of people all over the world are going to make sure that goodness and justice will prevail there's a reason for that and it's because we fear our progress and we fear our future but the reality is that we can have hope when our hope is in the one who is good the one who is just the one who has made peace the one who is the true and better adam the one who has redeemed our past, the one who is present with us even now, and the one who holds our future, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great King of the cosmos, the defeater of death and the devil, risen from the dead. I want to offer an invitation this morning. If you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus for the first time, 
I invite you today during this invitation to do just that. Turn from your sins in repentance and turn to God in faith through Jesus Christ and His gospel. And I believe He will save you. I believe He will save you. Second of all, you may be a believer already. You may say, Pastor, I just need to pray because my worldview has not been shaped by these things. I'd love for you to come pray today. And finally, you may be looking for a church home. I would love to talk to you today about what it means for you to be a member here at First Baptist Church. After this prayer, I want to invite you to come. Let's pray together. God, we pray and ask you even now to work in the hearts and lives of your people. Lord, I, I pray that we would all have a view of the world that is comprehensively defined by what your Son has done. And God, I pray that you would make that reality true through our own faith in each of our lives today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.